Part Five of Exile from Space by Judith Merrill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Jen Broda. Part Five. All of this has been easy to put down. The next part is harder, partly because it's so important, partly because it's personal, partly because I just don't remember it all as clearly. Larry was waiting for me when I got to the hotel. He stood up and walked over to me, looking at me as if I were the only person in the room besides himself, or as if he'd been waiting all his life and only just that moment saw what it was he'd been waiting for. I don't know how I looked at him, but I know how I felt all of a sudden, and I don't think I can express it very well. It was odd, because of the barriers to communication. The way he felt, and the way I did, are not things to put into words, and although I couldn't help but feel the impact of his emotion, I had to remember that he was deaf and blind to mine. All I could get from him, for that matter, was a sort of generalized noise, loud but confused, without any features or details. He smiled, and I smiled, and he said, I didn't know if you'd really come. And I said, Am I late? And he said, Not much. What do you want to drink? I knew he meant something with alcohol in it, and I didn't dare, not till I'd experimented all alone first. Could I get some orange juice? I asked. He smiled again. You can get anything you want. You don't drink? He took my arm and walked me over to a booth in the back corner and went on without giving me a chance to answer. No, of course you don't. Just orange juice and milk. Listen, Tina, I've been scared to ask you, but we might as well get it over with. How old are you anyhow? We sat down, but he still didn't give me a chance to answer. No, that's not the right question. Who are you? What are you? What makes a girl like you exist at all? How come they let you run around on your own like this? Does your mother... Never mind me, honey. I've got no business asking anything. Sufficient unto the moment and all that. I'm just talking so much because I'm so nervous. I haven't felt like this since... Since I went up for a solo in a Piper Cub. I didn't think you'd come. And you did. And you're still here in spite of me and my dumb yap. Orange juice for the lady, please, he told the waiter, and a beer for me. Draft. I just sat there. As long as he kept talking, I didn't have to. He looked just as beautiful as he had in the diner, only maybe more so. His skin was smoother. I suppose he'd just shaved. And he was wearing a tan suit just a shade darker than his skin, which was just a shade darker than his hair, and there was absolutely nothing I could say out loud in his language that would mean anything at all, so I waited to see if he'd start talking again. You're not mad at me, Tina? I smiled and shook my head. Well, say something then. It's more fun listening to you. You say that just like you mean it. Or do you mean funny? No. I mean that it's hard for me to talk much. I don't know how to say a lot of the things I want to say, and most people don't say anything when they talk, 
and I don't like listening to their voices, but I do like yours, and I can't help liking what you say. It's always so nice. About me, I mean. Complimentary. Flattering. You were right the first time, and you seem to be able to say what you mean very clearly. Which was just the trouble. Not only able to, but unable not to. It didn't take any special planning or remembering to say or act the necessary lies to other humans. But Larry was the least alien person I'd ever known. Dishonesty to him was like lying to myself. Playing a role for him was pure schizophrenia. Right then, I knew it was a mistake. I should never have made that date, or at least not nearly so soon. But even as I thought that, I had no more intention of cutting it short or backing out than I did of going back to the ship the next day. I just tried not to talk too much and trusted to a certain knowledge that I was as important to him as he was to me. So perhaps whatever mistakes I made, whatever I said that sounded wrong, he would either accept or ignore or forgive. But of course, you can't just sit all night and say nothing, and the simplest things could trip me up, like when he asked if I'd like to dance. All I had to say was no thanks, and instead, because I wanted to try it, I said, I don't know how. Or when he said something about going to a movie, and I agreed enthusiastically, and he gave me a choice of three different ones that he wanted to see. Oh, anyone, I told him. You're easy to please he said, but he insisted on my making a choice. There was something he called an old Astaire Rogers, and something else that was made in England, and one current American one with stars I'd seen on television. I wanted to see either of the others. I could have said so, or I could have named one, anyone. Instead, I heard myself blurting out that I'd never been to a movie. At that point, of course, he began to ask questions in earnest, and at that point, schizoid or not, I had to lie. It was easier, though, because I'd been thoroughly briefed in my story for just such emergencies as this, and because I could talk more or less uninterruptedly with only pertinent questions thrown in, and without having to react so much to the emotional tensions between us. I told him how my parents had died in an automobile accident when I was a baby, how my two uncles had claimed me at the hospital, about the old house up on the mountainside, and the convent school, and the two old men who hated the evils of the world, about the death of the first uncle, and at long last the death of the second, and the lawyers, and the will, and everything, the whole story, as we'd worked it out back on the ship. It answered everything, explained everything, even the unexpected item of not being able to eat meat. My uncles were vegetarians, which was certainly a harmless eccentricity compared to most of the others I credited them with. As a story, it was pretty far-fetched, but it hung together, and in certain ways it wasn't even too far removed from the truth. It was, anyhow the closest thing to the truth that I could tell, 
and I therefore delivered it with a fair degree of conviction. Of course, it wasn't designed to stand up to the close and personal inspection Larry gave it, but then he wanted to believe me. He seemed to swallow it. What he did, of course, was something any man who relies, as he did, on his reflexes and responses to stay alive learns to do very early. He filed all questions and apparent discrepancies for reference or for thinking over when there was time and proceeded to make the most of the current situation. We both made the most of it. It was a wonderful evening from that point on. We went to the Astaire Rogers picture, and although I missed a lot of the humor, since it was contemporary stuff from a time before I had any chance to learn about Earth, the music and dancing were fun. Later on, I found that dancing was not nearly as difficult or intricate as it looked, at least not with Larry. All I had to do was give in to a natural impulse to let my body follow his. It felt wonderful, from the feet on up. Finally, we went back to the hotel, where we'd left my car, and I started to get out of his, but he reached out an arm and stopped me. There's something else I guess you never did, he said. His voice sounded different from before. He put both his hands on my shoulders and pulled me toward him and leaned over and kissed me. I'd seen it, of course, on television. I'd seen it, but I had no idea. That first time, it was something I felt on my lips and felt so sweetly and so strongly that the rest of me seemed to melt away entirely. I had no other sensations except in that one place where his mouth touched mine. That was the first time. When it stopped, the world stopped, and I began again, but I had to sort out the parts and pieces and put them all together to find out who I was. While I did this, his hands were still on my shoulders, where they'd been all along, only he was holding me at arm's distance away from him and looking at me curiously. It really was, wasn't it? he said. What? I tried to say, but the sound didn't come out. I took a breath and... Was what? I croaked. The first time. He smiled suddenly, and it was like the sun coming up in the morning, and then his arms went all the way around me. I don't know whether he moved over on the seat, or I did, or both of us. Oh, baby baby, he whispered in my ear, and then there was the second time. The second time was like the first, and also like dancing, and some ways like the bathtub. This time none of me melted away, and it was all there, and all close to him, and all warm, and all tingling with sensations. I was more completely alive right then than I had ever been before in my life. After we stopped kissing each other, we stayed very still, holding on to each other for a while, and then he moved away, just a little, enough to breathe better. I didn't know what to do. I didn't want to get out of the car. I didn't even want to be separated from him by the two or three inches between us on the seat. But he was sitting next to me now, staring straight ahead, not saying anything, 
and I just didn't know what came next. On television, the kiss was always the end of the scene. He started the car again. I said, I have to, my car, I... We'll come back, he said. Don't worry about it, we'll come back. Let's just drive a little. He pulled out past my car and turned and looked at me for a minute. You don't want to go now, do you? Right away? I shook my head, but he wasn't looking at me anymore, so I took a breath and said out loud, No. We came off a twisty street onto the highway. So that's how it hits you, he said. He wasn't exactly talking to me, more like thinking out loud. Twenty-seven years, a cool cat, and now it has to be a crazy little midget that gets to you. He had to stop then for a red light, the same light I'd stopped at the first time on the way in. That seemed a long, long time before. Larry turned around and took my hand. He looked hard at my face. I'm sorry, hun. I didn't mean that the way it sounded. What? I said. What do you mean? I hadn't even tried to make sense out of what he was saying before. He wasn't talking to me anyhow. Kid, he said, maybe that was the first time for you, but in a different way, it was the first time for me, too. His hand opened and closed around mine, and his mouth opened and closed, too, but nothing came out. The light was green. He noticed and started moving, but it turned red again. This time he kept watching it. I don't suppose anybody ever told you about the birds and the bees and the butterflies, he said. Told me what about them? He didn't answer right away, so I thought about it. All I can think of is they all have wings. They all fly. So do I. So does a fly. What I mean is, the hell with it. He turned off the highway, and we went up a short hill and through a sort of gateway between two enormous rocks. Have you ever been here? He asked. I don't think so. They call it the Garden of the Gods. I don't know why. I like it here. It's a good place to drive and think. There was a lot of moonlight, and the garden was all hills and drops and winding roads between low-growing brush and everywhere, as if the creatures of some giant planet had dropped them, were those towering rocks, their shapes scooped out and chiseled and hollowed and twisted by wind, water, and sand. Yes, it was lovely, and it was non-intrusive. Just what he said, a good place to drive and think. Once he came to the top of a hill and stopped the car, we looked out over the garden, spreading out in every direction, with the moonlight shadowed in the sagebrush and gleaming off the great rocks. Then we turned and looked at each other, and he reached out for me and kissed me again, after which he pulled away as if the touch of me hurt him, and grabbed hold of the wheel with a savage look on his face, and raced the motor, and raised a cloud of dust on the road behind us. I didn't understand, and I felt hurt. I wanted to stop again. I wanted to be kissed again. I didn't like sitting alone on my side of the seat with that growl in his throat not quite coming out. I asked him to stop again. 
he shook his head and made believe to smile. I'll buy you a book, he said, all about the birds and the bees and a little thing we have around here we call sex. I'll buy it tomorrow and you can read it. You do know how to read, don't you? And then we'll take another ride and we can park if you want to. Not tonight, baby. But I know, I started and then had sense enough to stop. I knew about sex, but what I knew about it didn't connect with kissing or parking the car or sitting close, and it occurred to me that maybe it did, and maybe there was a lot I didn't know that wasn't on television and wasn't on the ship's reference tapes either. Morals and mores and nuances of behavior. So I shut up and let him take me back to the hotel again, to my own car. He leaned past me to open the door on my side, but he couldn't quite make it, and I had my fourth kiss. Then he let go again and almost pushed me out of the car, but when I started to close the door behind me, he called out, Tomorrow night? I... All right, I said. Yes, tomorrow night. Can I pick you up? There was no reason not to this time. The first time I wouldn't tell him where I lived because I knew I'd have to change places and I didn't know where yet. I told him the name of the motel and where it was. Six o'clock, he said. All right. Good night. Good night. End of part five.